fertilisers are one of the biggest input costs for grain growers, so a carefully considered soil and plant testing strategy is essential. In most soils, phosphorus and potassium are best added at seeding, but without soil testing, it's not possible to identify if the soil is deficient until yield is compromised. Plant tissue testing can also offer a valuable in-season opportunity to review your crop's nutrition status. To discuss soil testing, plant tissue testing and nutrition budgeting, I'm joined in the GRDC podcast studio by Sean Mason, Haram Van Rees and Rob Norton. Thanks for your time. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Good to be here, Drew. We've had really good opening rains and you're probably seeing a lot of seeding at this point in time. So what should or could farmers be doing at the moment to be managing their nitrogen budgeting for the season? Drew, in the first instance in this project, we measure deep soil N, which means that we take soil samples down to 90 centimetres in increments down the profile, and we have those analysed for available nitrogen, which is nitrate and ammonium. And based on that, we can work out the total amount of N that is in the soil if you include the bulk density of the different layers in the soil. So that's a fairly simple calculation. Now, this year, we're getting some pretty amazing results back on the levels. There's quite a few paddocks that have come back with more than 250 kilograms of available N. And admittedly, those paddocks were in vetch in uh, last year, but they are extremely high levels considering that a wheat crop uses roughly about 40 kilograms of N per tonne of production. So if you've got 160 kilograms of available N, that should be enough for a four-tonne crop. In addition to the nitrogen that is in the soil now, there's also mineralisation over the season, and that in the Mali could be somewhere around 20 kilograms per hectare per year, and in the Wimmera or in the higher rainfall areas in Victoria and South Australia, it's probably more likely to be around 40. So there's a more N available there. So it is actually possible to do a rough budget if you know what your projected yield is, if you know what your soil test result is, and you take an estimate of the mineralisation of the nitrogen. And that budget will then help in setting your urea during the season when you've got a better idea what the crop yield is going to be. That sounds like a fairly good way to start the season off and and a cost-effective way too, I'd imagine. Well, unless you know some of these things, then you're always going to be guessing what you have to do during the season. And we're probably past the stage of guessing because we've got enough technology now to help us and... I know it's a bit of a chore to do the soil testing, but you can contract that. And it's, it's invaluable information to know how much phosphorus and nitrogen and other nutrients you have in the soil. Because without it, you are really guessing and you may not take the opportunity of a really, really good year. Before we move on, Sean, I'd just like to touch briefly on zoning. Recently, we had a detailed discussion about zoning in a previous podcast, but briefly, how does it help in terms of assessing the variability of nitrogen across an entire paddock? Uh, the zoning that we've implemented, the two zones per paddock, um, definitely very different nitrogen results, or there can be, within your paddock. So, Harm um, did speak of very high zones, and I suppose we have seen on a corresponding part of the paddock that these values can actually be half of the other zone, I guess, so... 
yeah, precision ag again and variable rate, but really knowing where your nitrogen levels are sitting within paddock is very valuable as well. I think the other side of that or extension of that is that we can make an estimate of supply based on the things that Harms talked about with deep nitrogen and mineralisation and varies across the paddock. But we also have to make an estimate of demand, which is also has a few unknowns in it. So we're trying to deal with unknown supply and unknown demand, but we have to put a peg in the ground somewhere. And based on the amount of water, we could probably think that, uh, you know, two to three to four tonne per hectare would be budget figures as you go from the north to the south. And uh, you'd make your estimate of uh, nitrogen demand based on that and uh, look to uh, meet the gap as the season progresses. Putting all the nitrogen up front, I think, is a, is a risky process simply because uh, you have least knowledge of the demand at that stage when you're seeding. You might be optimistic about a good yield and a good demand, but as the season rolls out, you can also roll out nitrogen to meet that that increasing demand, or if the demand doesn't increase, we just leave the uh, nitrogen in the shed. So, Rob, I'll just add a little bit to that, especially applying your nitrogen at seeding, is that people have to be very careful that they don't put too much nitrogen with the seed because that will actually damage the seedling. So if you are putting out reasonable levels of nitrogen at seeding, like more than 20 kilograms of N, which is approximately the same as 40 kilograms of urea, you don't want to put it with the seed. You want to put it preferably next to the seed and not under the seed because when the nitrogen dissolves and starts to volatilise, you don't want to damage the seedlings. And again, that greatly depends on the equipment we're using. I mean, everybody's going to disc seed as it seems or certainly narrow points and wide rows and both of those make that uh, nitrogen issue even more. And basically with canola, if you're into a dry seed bed, you wouldn't want to be putting any nitrogen near the seed with the canola it's sowing. So you'd have to, you'd have to be either twin shooting or waiting to a bit later uh, as the crop emerges to start uh, topping nitrogen up. And even worse so on sands compared to clays. And Rob, when you said no nitrogen, that is, you mean urea for that, you don't mean the nitrogen that's in MAP and DAP, do you? Uh, DAP and MAP both contain ammonia and volatilisation of ammonia can come from both of those. And we've certainly seen uh, DAP at 100 kilograms of DAP per hectare put in the seed row at 30 centimetre row spacings with narrow points, uh, touch up canola crops. Yeah, yeah. You're putting out 20 kilograms of N there. So. That's right. So I think there's a really good point, and it's obviously soil type dependent with its fertiliser toxicity. But Rob, you might be able to link us to a, some good resources that's available, like actually calculating the amount of N per given a soil type. Yeah, there is a there is a little uh, calculator on the web, which if you just uh, Google seed damage calculator, it'll take you to a, a calculator where you can put in your mechanical side, your row spacing, the type of points you've got, uh, the fertiliser you're using, the crop the moisture, soil moisture and the soil texture and it'll give you a, a reasonably conservative estimate of what you could expect uh, in terms of safe uh, fertiliser rates. You also put in what you consider is an acceptable stand loss, whether you're willing to accept 10, 20 or 30% of the $40 a kilo canola seed being <laughs> touched up by the urea or the um, ammonium from the DAP. That's a very comprehensive discussion in terms of nitrogen budgeting. What then should producers be thinking about phosphorus budgeting? Yeah, farmers have been eager and 
seen some moisture around to, to get in the paddock. So definitely there's been some studies, trials in 1990s that uh, yeah, if you do so early, yes, there is an opportunity that the crop will actually get away or the root system will get away quite quickly, warm and wet conditions. With that, you get good exploration of residual soil pea levels, which might be left over the last couple of years. And the crop reliance on fertiliser pea is actually a little bit lower. So the growers that have been in and, and got their crop in is, is good news. I guess if we do get delayed or there is a delay in sowing, yeah, definitely as you get cooler and the soil is wet, that actually does place a lot more reliance on that fertiliser pea. So don't forget your fertiliser pea inputs the later you go in your soil window. I suppose there's a tendency to reduce pea if you're thinking you've got lower yield potentials, but there is actually, due to soil crop growth, a, a heavier reliance on pea. And if you are doing strip trials, the parts of the paddock which are lower pea is going to be quite pronounced with vigour, so low pea will, will have a big influence on crop vigour, so that's getting out of the ground and, and tiller establishment, so it can be quite visual early. So that's, yeah, that's a good point to see your parts of the paddock that are actually possibly underperforming with inadequate pea. Sean, what sort of uh, soil test numbers are you getting back from the surveys that uh, yourself and Harm did in terms of soil phosphorus? Yeah, good question. There's, I suppose there's always the good scenarios where possibly a couple of poor seasons in some regions and uh, there hasn't been that removal of pea and uptake of pea from the crop that we are sitting at marginal or adequate. So the rates that the growers are actually implementing will definitely optimise yields. Uh, there are, as we saw last year, and it has been coming up again this year that there are opportunities probably within paddock that some soil types are driving low pea availability. And again, that's alkaline soils with free calcium carbonate. There's an extra factor of also crop removal, but also the, the fertiliser tie-up from these soils. So we, we are seeing some of these. I think Harm can agree that some of these zones are coming back with lower pea. So that soil characteristics is actually driving the pea availability more so than crop removal over the decades that we've been growing. So yeah, it's a big mixed match and definitely changes across paddock and across regions, I should say. So Rob, just to add a little bit more to that, the variation in Colwell and DGTP are enormous. Like for example, in the southwest of Victoria, you get values of well over 100 parts per million of Colwell, which is extremely high and reasonably, well, lower levels of DGT. But in the Mallee, most of the Wimmera and the Mid-North and the York Peninsula and South Australia, most of the samples are coming back in sort of that mid-range of 20 to 40 parts per million of Colwell. And one other thing that is really critical in the interpretation is the PBI, which is the Phosphorus Buffer Index. And that's really a measure of how much calcium is in the soil, which ties up the available phosphate. And that is actually highly variable as well, but quite stable between years. So when we compare last year's results to this year, then the results in PBI are quite similar. So it's important for growers, if they're getting advice on their phosphorus use, based on the soil test that they take into account the Colwell, the DGT, as well as the PBI values. So coming back to the situation at the moment, say a grower's got a mid to high range soil P-test, whether it's coal wool or DGT, can they turn the phosphorus cog off on the uh, sowing equipment and just put no phosphorus with the grain? I think, yeah, there's pretty good research evidence out there that even a little startup in that situation, well, I think the minimum uh, guidelines is about five kilos of P. That will actually, even a, in an adequate or marginal situation, will actually help get the crop out of the ground and 
get established, anything below five kilograms units of pea, we start getting issues with spatial variability with even quite a few growers are doing blends now with MAP, urea, DAP, etc. So we do get sort of spatial problems if we go below five kilograms of pea per hectare. Some crops will actually see a bit of pea, some will actually miss out. But yeah, definitely a little bit of starter pea with your I suppose good history of pea and saying, soil tests saying you've got plenty, so that's definitely recommended. It would seem that uh, the research evidence suggests that, you know, again, as you say, you should be putting some pea with the seed, and it's it's a bit the reverse of the issue with uh, nitrogen, where as you go to wide rows, you cause more damage. In fact, as you go to wide rows, the in-row phosphorus distribution becomes um, closer, so you can actually maybe go... Uh, a little lower if you're on 30 centimetre or even wider seed rows because the seed is going to be relatively close to where the fertiliser granules are. So that opportunity exists, maybe even get to, go down to two or three kilograms of pea at seeding as a as a starter, as a pop-up pea, as we call it. Yeah, another good scenario in this project is that we're actually testing adequate pea levels with half grower rates. So we can actually quantify or get the grower to visually see that there's no penalty by potentially reducing their rate in an adequate situation. Sean, earlier in the discussion, you touched on fertiliser test strips. Where should producers currently be at with these? Well, hopefully, uh, if they've sown already, that they've already implemented their pea strategies or test strips. So as mentioned before, our recommendations based off in this project, based off the two zones, will be uh, normally to implement a nil pea and quite rightly some growers are wary of putting a, a large strip or a large run of no pea so even if that's half the grower rate but one strip of that and then their grower rate so that's what they want to use and in some scenarios where we're getting a, a responsive situation we encourage them to implement a, a one and a half or at least a two times grower rate so they can actually see that through the year and, and just see how their grower rate is sitting with respects to pea availability and how the crop can actually see those soil test values. That's been a good strategy. With nitrogen, we can be a little bit more flexible um, given that we hopefully we've got a decent season coming up, but definitely with, with the variability in nitrogen, we can test optimal nitrogen rates on, on what we call fuel gauge strips, enriched strips, however you want to call them, but we can implement them in season, which is like Rob suggested before, the difficulty of actually predicting yield potential and giving that or overall end demand value, we can actually adjust trying to closely match that with information in season and, and in season nitrogen applied strips. Let's move on to tissue testing, specifically at growth stage 30 or GS30. What do producers need to know and consider? So tissue testing at growth stage 30, which is at the end of tillering, is a pretty key measure because it will enable us to determine how well the crop is performing in terms of its nutrient status, not just phosphorus, but also other nutrients and Quite often, if there's a micronutrient that is low, it will actually show up in the tissue test much, much better than in a soil test. We do tissue testing, as I said, at growth stage 30, but it's very important to, at the same time, to collect biomass samples because the tissue test result comes back as a percentage of, for example, phosphorus. But unless we know how much biomass is there, and we can't work that out in kilograms of phosphorus per hectare that is in the actual crop and that is the ultimate measure that we are dependent on to be able to tell whether that crop is phosphorus deficient or deficient in any other type of nutrient and it is a very good indicator and last year in the project we found pretty large differences between 
zero P and the normal rate of P and the double rate of P that was applied at seeding in relation to the tissue test results. So it's definitely worth doing for more than just phosphorus, but also for micronutrients. One of the things that I'd add to that uh, harm is that with something like zinc, uh, zinc tissue tests are good and quite reliable in identifying zinc deficiency, but they need to be done early simply because the response to applied zinc, if you go on with a foliar zinc, has to be in, in on the crop very soon after GS30 to get a yield response. You'll, you'll often, even if you go a bit later and put some on, you'll see the crop will green up if it's low zinc. But the research says that most of that doesn't really show up uh, in yield. But copper's a bit the reverse. If you get low copper, copper's a bit more amenable to uh, coming a bit later with a foliar uh, copper. So you can hold off on the copper a little bit but uh, certainly try and get that zinc on as early as you possibly can. Yeah, so that's a very good point, Rob. And I guess also then, even if it was done at growth stage 30 and it was low in zinc, then appreciate that it's too late for this year. Mm. But it's mm. a very good warning for next year to make sure that some zinc goes out and when you're sowing your fertiliser. Lastly, in-season deep testing for nitrogen levels. Why is this something producers might want to consider? So I guess the majority of uh, samples taken for this project and by agronomists may have been from harvest time onwards and majority would have been in that February-March timing. So for nitrogen, that can be possibly a little bit misleading of soil nitrogen supply. So we know nitrogen supply is very heavily dependent on temperature and moisture. So potentially there could have been quite some dry zones and sampling performing in Feb and March. So yeah, obviously with temperature and moisture, there's mineralisation. So to actually get an accurate estimate of the nitrogen bucket per se or the, or the fuel gauge, there is an opportunity to go out soon after crop establishment, even up to GS30 to factor in turnaround time at the lab. But we can actually go out if the weather allows and you can get on the paddock to do some sampling, definitely sampling in season. So between GS21 to 30, we can actually get a pretty good accurate reading of the whole process before that. So what the climate's allowed, nitrogen mineralisation, nitrogen residual in, from the previous year and hopefully we can get a more accurate assessment of what the crop needs if we can get a good indication or calculation of yield potential. So that is an opportunity. Again, could be restricted by climate and wet paddocks, but in theory it's, it's an accurate way of determining at that moment nitrogen supply. And again, the lab should be able to do that testing quite quickly. Um, two to three day turnaround times is achievable if you, once the sample reaches the lab. So definitely opportunity, I think. Sean Mason, Harm Van Rees and Rob Norton, thank you for joining me in the GRDC podcast studio. Thank you. Drew. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Drew.